You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. So an experiment I read about, that this, uh, there was an experiment performed in which caterpillars were placed around the rim of a large uh, pot, like a potting container, which contained dirt and several of the caterpillars' favorite, you know, plants that they like to eat. And so these caterpillars were lined up kind of, you know, end to end in a circle around the rim of this pot. Uh, you know, and what happened is then the caterpillars began to move and what they would do is they just kind of followed the caterpillar in front of them. So they just started going around in circles and circles and around and around they went following each other, right? Each one following the one right in front of him until they all eventually died of starvation. And I wonder how much that is an accurate picture of what our society can be like, you know? It's, uh, isn't that sometimes the case, that people in our society live this way? Following the people directly around them or in front of them uh, and taking cues from them, assuming that those people know where they're going and what they're doing, and so we just kind of go with where everybody's going and go with what's going on. But doing that, what we find is if we do that, it leaves us hungry, it leaves us empty, dry, and going around in circles and not really getting anywhere, and ultimately, it leads to death opposed to that instead of that God offers us something different which is what we're going to be looking at today God offers us something exciting something impacting something that has purpose and meaning and direction rather than just following those around us he offers a dynamic relationship with him in which he will lead us he'll speak to us he'll guide us and if we follow his voice if we respond to his pull upon us then he will lead us in what may be a different route than wherever the crowd is going, but it will lead us to the goods. I remember being a young person and being afraid that if I really gave my life over to God, then I would be sentenced, I would be subject to a small, boring life. But here's what I've found. In the, in the years that I have given my life over to the Lord, what I've discovered is that in reality, a life following Jesus, a life actually living out his teachings, a life yielded to God, lived in that dynamic relationship with God in which you're led by his spirit, that is the most exciting, most interesting, most fulfilling life possible. Today in our study of the book of Acts, we're going to see that principle in action in the life of a man named Philip. So the title of today's message is Led by the Spirit. And for you note takers and those of you who would help to navigate this section and keep it in your mind, here's an outline for you of what we're going to see in this section. The first thing we're going to see is we're going to see some strange instructions. The second thing we're going to see, we're going to see an impossible coincidence And the third thing we're going to see is an exciting dynamic. That's how it's going to be. Strange instructions, an impossible coincidence, and last, an exciting dynamic. So let's begin by looking at these strange instructions. We're going to be picking up from verse 26. In our study last week, we, we have been reading, right, how the Christians at this time, who were at this time solely concentrated in the city of Jerusalem, they began to experience some intense persecution. And as a result, many of them fled from Jerusalem, where they were based. They were fleeing for their lives, and they landed in the surrounding areas of Judea, which is to the south of Jerusalem, and Samaria, which was to the north of Jerusalem. 
Now, the reason that's interesting is because Jesus had actually specifically instructed his disciples that when he left, he said, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to just stay in Jerusalem, but I want you to go out from Jerusalem. I want you to go to Judea. I want you to go to Samaria. I want you to go to the ends of the earth, and I want you to tell people everywhere. I want you to take them this good news of who I am and what I have done. And, and, but the, here's the thing. That was the instruction Jesus gave them, but then here we are six years later, And the disciples are still only in Jerusalem. They haven't ventured out from there. But now, because of this persecution, many of the Christians began to leave Jerusalem and they spread out into the surrounding areas. And guess where they end up? In Judea and Samaria, right where God had always wanted them to go in the first place. They they went there as refugees fleeing persecution, but they ended up there as unintentional or accidental missionaries. And we saw last week that it wasn't the apostles, those original 12 disciples of Jesus, who took the gospel, the message of Jesus to Samaria, but it was a young man named Philip who brought the gospel to Samaria. We first met Philip back in chapter 6. Philip was one of those seven men who were picked out. They were chosen to serve tables, which meant they're ministering to the practical needs of the widows in the church. It was humble work, but Philip did it faithfully, and he did it as service to God and service to people. And now here we are at the beginning of chapter 8, and then we see Philip again. He's now one of those Christians who has fled Jerusalem, fled the persecution in Jerusalem, and has landed in Samaria. And there in Samaria, God did an incredible work, and he used Philip to do it. Let me, let me remind you, read to you some of the things that we saw last week that God did through Philip there in Samaria. In Acts chapter 8, verse 5, we read that Philip went to the city of the Samaritans. By the way, that's the modern day city of Nablus, which is in the West Bank. It still exists to this day. So Philip went to the city of the Samaritans, and Philip proclaimed Jesus to them. I love that. He didn't have anything else to share with them. He wanted to share with them Jesus. In verse 6, we see that multitudes, crowds of people, responded with faith to the message of the gospel. All these people wanted to become Christians. It was huge. In verse Seven, we read that the power of God was manifest in remarkable ways. In verse 8, we read that there was much joy in that city as people by the hundreds, maybe even thousands, turned to Jesus and found hope in the gospel. In verse 12, we read that many of these Samaritans were then baptized. In verse 17, we read how the Holy Spirit came upon those who believed. This was a remarkable work of God. This is what a lot of people would call an awakening or a revival, right? One of those rare and sought-after times when great numbers of people come to faith. It was a remarkable thing that was going on there in Samaria. And Philip was right there in the middle of it. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people turning to Christ. And it must have been absolutely thrilling to have been there at this time and to have gotten to experience this thing. Philip was right in the middle of it all. God was using him. He was the key person God was using to do this big work. But then check out what happens in verse 26. It's really kind of the the weirdest thing in the world. In verse 26 it says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Okay, so there's this revival happening in Samaria, right? Multitudes of people coming to faith. Philip's the key person who God is using. And then God says something kind of strange to him. He speaks to Philip and tells him, okay, I want you to leave Samaria. 
leave this big revival, all these people turning to Jesus. I want you to leave there, and I want you to go down to the desert, down to the middle of nowhere, to this lonely road in the middle of nothing. That's all that God tells him. Notice this. God doesn't tell him why. God doesn't tell him what he's going to find when he gets down there or if anything at all is going to happen when he gets there. He just says, hey, I want you to leave and I want you to go to the desert, to this lonely stretch of road. You know, from a purely logical standpoint, it just doesn't really make any sense, does it? I mean, why would Philip leave Samaria where he has this incredibly fruitful ministry at a time like this? And to go where? To go to the desert? To an uninhabited place where there's not even any people? It just doesn't make any sense. And what makes it even crazier is that God doesn't even tell him why. He doesn't even tell him what he's supposed to look for when he gets down there. God just tells him, go, get up and go. And once you get down there, well, then I'll show you what to do next. These are pretty strange instructions, right? But here's what we read in verse 27. We read this, that Philip rose up and went. Now, I love how Philip obeys God even though he doesn't completely understand what God's purpose is with this or what God's plan in the big picture is with this. He doesn't understand why God is telling him to do this, but he obeys even though he doesn't understand. And I wonder how many of us here, we struggle with not always completely understanding uh, what God is doing or why God is leading us in certain directions or how it could possibly be better the way that God is leading us than the way that we think that we should go. Maybe you read your Bible sometimes and you don't always understand why God gives certain instructions that he does or how it could actually be better to do things the way that he says to do them rather than the way that seems better to you. But, but I love this thing about Philip here, that he obeys God even though he doesn't completely understand what God is doing. He doesn't really understand how it could be better for him to leave this great work in Samaria and go out to the middle of nowhere. But yet he obeys. And by the end of this story, we're going to see that God did have a purpose with this. And as Philip obeys God, even though he doesn't completely understand all the details, it leads to glorious and good things. And I believe that same thing will be true in your life and my life as we obey God by faith, even though we don't completely understand all the time or even when we don't completely understand. So Philip rose and he went. Now, if I were Philip, I can imagine that I would have a couple excuses. I would, have the, I would have some classic excuses and I'd probably think they were pretty good excuses as to why I should not actually have to do this. I might start out by saying, okay, God, I see that you're telling me to go down to the desert, but, but listen, not me, right? I mean, can't anybody else do this? I mean, there's a lot of people here, God. Can't you just send somebody else? I mean, look, I'm the one doing this big thing in Samaria. God, send somebody, but not me. Right? Or another response I might have is I might be able to say to God, you know what, God? Not now. Right? Maybe, maybe another time, if, if this, all this stuff wasn't going on, this just really isn't a good time for me to do that, God. I'm right in the middle of this big thing. I, I would go, but you know, just not right now. Another common response I might have, an excuse I might have, I might say, well, not there, right? Like, man, if it was somewhere else, I would totally be on board, but not there. I just, I'm just not into the desert. It's just not my thing, you know what I mean, saying, right? Like, I would go, but not there. But I love this heart of Philip. Even though he could have had a hundred excuses why not to go, he obeys and allows the Spirit to lead him, and he follows, you know, sometimes we complicate the Christian life so much, but, but here's, in many ways, here's what it comes down to. Here's what it means to live a life as a Christian. It means this, that you do what God tells you to do. God tells you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
why don't you do that, right? God tells you, forgive as you have been forgiven. Well, why don't you do that? It's easy to make excuses, but look at how beautifully simple this is. This is the essence of what it looks like to have a life submitted to and devoted to God. Simply doing what God tells you to do. It has been said this way, that obedience is the greatest form or greatest expression of worship. Obedience is the greatest expression of worship. You might remember to the book of 1 Samuel, we studied it here at church a little while back. You remember that God told Saul, I desire obedience more than sacrifice. Obedience to God is an expression of faith. Obedience to God is also an expression of worship. So let me ask you, think about this question. What has God told you to do? What has God instructed you to do in your marriage, in your personal life, with your finances, in your spiritual life? What has God told you to do? The greatest expression of worship is to do what God has told you to do. Like Philip, right? God says, get up and go. Leave Samaria. Go down to the desert. And even though he could have had plenty of excuses, why not to? Philip gets up and he goes. And that's beautiful. We read this at the the end of verse 27. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was now returning seated in his chariot. Now you can imagine that when Philip uh, announced this to people in Samaria that he's going down, you know, hey, I'm going to the desert. Well, right now you're going to leave right in the middle of this big revival? Yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, God told me to go. Well, where are you going? Well, I'm just going to this road in the desert. Well, what are you going to see there? I don't, I don't know. I'm just going, you know. People must have thought he was crazy. But Philip knew that God had spoken to him and so he went. And it seemed that, you know, he doesn't even know himself what he's looking for down there. And like God so often does throughout Scripture, but also in our lives as well, God was leading Philip, and the way he was leading him, he was leading him one step at a time. God didn't tell Philip the whole plan right up front. He didn't tell him what was going to happen when he got there and how this was all going to pan out and how it was all going to be worth it. Philip just had to obey God one step at a time, trusting God, walking by faith, even though he didn't know how it was all going to work out. God told him, do this. And then only after he had done that would God give him the next instruction, the next step. You might remember back to the story of how God led Abraham. He led Abraham in a very similar way. He said, Abe, take my hand and follow me. Make me your God. Take my hand and follow me and I will lead you to more blessing than you can even imagine. And, and, you know, you can imagine Abraham wondering, well, okay, God, okay, so, uh, you know, give me some more information here. I just want to know what I'm getting myself into. You know, where, where are you taking me? Well, I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you. Oh, okay, um, well, how will I know when I get there? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you when we get there. Oh, okay, well, uh, what are we going to do when we get there? Well, don't worry about that. I'm going to show you when you get there, but just follow me, and step by step, I'm going to lead you, but I promise you this, it's going to be glorious, Many times, this is how God leads us as well. We want the five-year plan. We want the 10-year plan. We want to know how it's all going to happen. But sometimes, God just puts one thing in front of us and says, do this. Just right now, this is what you're doing. Do this. Go down this road to the desert. Well, okay, what am I going to see when I get to the desert? I'll show you when you get there. Just go to the desert. I know that's how God has often led me in my life when I think about how God has led me in different ways in different places. This is kind of how it's been. Just do this thing 
And then after that comes the next instruction. And what an exciting thing that is. What a dynamic dependence on God this creates. A walk with God in which he leads you step by step. And there's something very exciting about that. That God would say to us, to you, take my hand and walk with me. Follow my lead step by step, one step at a time. Don't be one of these caterpillars just following the guy in front of you or the people around you assuming that they know where they're going. Take my hand and let me lead you the way that you should go one step at a time. And so Philip steps out, not knowing where he's going or what he's going to find when he gets to this road in the middle of the desert. But once he gets there, he sees this chariot on this lonely road coming down the road, and it turns out this is uh, a high-ranking official from Ethiopia. Do you see what else is happening here? God has taken Philip away from a revival, multitudes of people, big groups of people. He's taken him away from that to minister to one single person, just one person. And here's what that tells us and what that shows us about the heart of God, that God cares about the many. He cares about big ministry, lots of people, but you know what else? God also cares about the one. He cares about the individual. What God is showing us here is that his concern is not only for the multitudes, but also for individuals. The heart of the gospel is that God not only loves the world so much that he came to save the world, but God loves you. So much that he came to save you. You see, if it was only you, if it was just for you, I can tell you this. The message of the gospel is that God still would have left heaven and become a man and suffered and died on the cross only for you. That's how much he loves you. The fact that God would go to such great lengths as we see here to reach a man like this shows us that God's love and concern is not just for people in general. God's love and concern is for individuals. You know, maybe you're sitting here this morning, you need to know this this morning, that God cares about you, that he knows you, that he loves you, that you're not just another face in the crowd, that you're not just a number to him. You have a name, and he knows that name. You have a face, you have a heart, and God knows you, he loves you, and he cares deeply for you. Now, there's one more strange instruction that Philip is going to receive. Read with me from verse 28, the second half there. He, that's the Ethiopian man, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So here's this high-ranking official with his chariot and his entourage. And the Holy Spirit tells Philip, hey, I want you to just go over and join his chariot, right? This would be like, you know, you see a limousine with darked out windows and the diplomatic plates on it. And God just tells you, you know, go knock on the window and ask for some gray poupon, right? It would take a lot of boldness to do something like that, just to kind of stroll up next to him and knock on the window of the limousine, Right? These were some strange instructions, weren't they? Leave the revival in Samaria. Leave all these people turning to Jesus and go down to the desert where there's nobody. Leave the multitudes and go find this one man. And and then go join that chariot over there, this person you've never met. Just go run alongside and go talk to him. These were very strange instructions and Philip had no idea what was going to happen each step of the way and how this was all going to work out. But God was leading Philip step by step by the Spirit and Philip obeyed and followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. After strange instructions, here's the next thing we see. We see an impossible coincidence. Verse 30, we read this. So Philip ran to him and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. 
So here's Philip, you know, jogging uh, up alongside this chariot, coming up alongside, you know, the chariot's going along, and Philip's, you know, he's starting to lose his breath, and he's running next to this chariot, you know, and he, uh, he overhears what the Ethiopian man is reading, and the reason is because in antiquity, it was common that whenever people read, they read out loud. So as Philip's running next to this guy, he's guy sitting in his chariot and he's reading out loud and Philip recognizes what he's reading the man just happens to be reading from the Bible he's reading from the book of Isaiah so this man was an Ethiopian proselyte to Judaism which is actually a lot more common than you might expect Judaism in Ethiopia can be traced back to the Queen of Sheba which historically you might remember is talked about in the Bible she came to visit King Solomon the son of David and she was impressed by Solomon's wisdom and many of the royal house of Ethiopia converted to Judaism at that time. So there was, in fact, there still is to this day a Jewish community in Ethiopia which includes some of the upper class. So this Ethiopian man, a proselyte to Judaism, he had come to Jerusalem on a religious pilgrimage. He was a noble man on a noble quest. He had come to Jerusalem seeking God. And now here he is on his way back home and he's reading the Bible, still seeking to know God through the scriptures. Now the fact that this Ethiopian man had his own scroll of the prophet Isaiah, that tells us a lot. It tells us that he was very wealthy because these scrolls were handmade and they were handwritten. So each one was very expensive. It would take years to create them and it was very rare for an individual to own their own copy of the scriptures. In fact, I don't know if you guys read the Times Call here in Longmont, but if you did, you might have noticed that recently this Jewish center called Kabad Jewish Center over here, they got their own handwritten Torah and they said that it, they generally cost between thirty and fifty thousand dollars right so this is a, a lot of money we're talking about here so here's Philip running alongside this wealthy Ethiopian official's chariot and he overhears that the man's reading the Isaiah the prophet and we read in verse 30 he says this hey uh, do you understand what you're reading and he says how can I unless somebody guides me and he invited Philip to come and sit with him so Philip goes now, he, he's gone so far, now think about this, he goes from just going down to the desert with no idea what he's looking for, and now here he is sitting in the chariot of this Ethiopian official who has invited him to explain the Bible to him, right? That's awesome. That's like, uh, you know, I remember when I was a missionary and there would be times where you're just like, wow, that's, that's what it's all about. Like people would just walk up to you, how can I be saved? And he'd be like, let me tell you, you know? So he's like, can you explain the Bible to me? And Philip's like, yeah, yeah, I think I can do that. So he gets, uh, you know, catches his breath. He's sitting in the chariot. And we read from verse 32. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about somebody else? Now this passage that he's reading is from Isaiah chapter 53, which is the famous passage which talks about the suffering servant, which describes an individual who suffers for the sins of the people. Now amongst the Jewish people of this time, and even today by the way, there is great confusion, there's great disagreement over what this passage means and who this suffering servant is. 
The most common interpretations, both at that time amongst the Jews and even today amongst Jewish teachers, are these. Some people believe that Isaiah is talking about himself, right? That he suffered a lot at the hands of other people, and he's talking about his own suffering and kind of, you know, kind of big words and kind of, you know, he's used in some hyperbole is what they would say. Other people would say that he, uh, that it's uh, talking about the nation of Israel kind of in a symbolic way, you know, personalizing as if the nation of Israel was a person who's suffering. And still there were other people who believed that this is clearly talking about the Messiah, that the Messiah is going to come and he will suffer for the sins of the people. But you see, many Jewish people rejected this interpretation. They were uneasy with this interpretation because in their mind, the Messiah was going to come not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. So they said, well, that just it doesn't fit. It doesn't make any sense. Now read from verse 35. It says this. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I love that verse. Philip explained to this man, this is what that passage is talking about. It's talking about the Messiah. And let me tell you what, I got good news for you. The Messiah has actually already come. God sent him, and God sent me to you actually, all the way from Samaria. I was doing a bunch of stuff in Samaria, and God sent me here to the middle of nowhere to give you this message, that the Messiah has indeed come and his name is Jesus and he came as a king to establish a kingdom but you know what else he came as a suffering servant and although he was without sin he suffered and he died for the sins of the people he died for your sins in order to make atonement for you before God so that you could be saved that's what this prophecy about Isaiah is talking about it's talking about Jesus and his death on the cross and Philip told this Ethiopian man, he told him from that very passage, the good news about Jesus. That because Jesus had died for his sins, he could be forgiven. That we can be free. But that's not all. See, Jesus didn't only suffer and die. Jesus did more than that. He defeated death. He's the one that all the scriptures promised and wrote about and prophesied about. He's the one who came to break the curse of sin and death. And because of that, not only can we be forgiven of our sins, but we can have eternal life life. That's the good news that Philip shared with him. And I love this phrase that beginning from that very scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Do you know that you can actually do that with any verse in the Bible? Because the whole Bible, right, it, it's all telling this grand story. It's this grand narrative of God's work in the world, how God created man, but then man rebelled against God, and then God has moved heaven and earth to remedy this situation, even at the cost of his own life. He became a man and gave his own life to remedy the situation. That's the story of the Bible. And so you can actually take any verse in the Bible, theoretically, and you can start from that very scripture and it will lead you to the good news about Jesus. In fact, I would say this. If you guys want to have a little fun, a little interaction here, I would invite you to tweet me or text me whatever verse you want. Just play some Bible roulette, right? Like, close your eyes, open it up, point your finger at something, and text me that verse or tweet it to me. We got the stuff up here on the screen. And I will respond to you and I will show you how from that very scripture I can take you to the good news about Jesus Christ. So feel free. Text me, tweet me. Let's do it. We'll put it up on the city. 
But this passage that the Ethiopian was reading, it, it's no sweat, right? Like, I mean, you, you got to really be messing up to not be able to preach Jesus from this scripture because this is a prophecy about Jesus. And so Philip takes this incredible opportunity to tell this man about Jesus, what this man had been looking for in Jerusalem, in his heart of hearts, what he had been seeking after in this pilgrimage to find God in Jerusalem, what he had been hoping to find by reading the scriptures. Here it is. This is it. Jesus Christ, God. God incarnate, God come to you. God come to us, the Messiah, the Savior, salvation and hope, redemption and new life. Everything that this man longed for in his heart, everything that you long for in your heart, it's found here in the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's read from verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now remember where they are, right? They're in the desert. And isn't it just a little bit surprising that they just, you know, just driving along in the desert, and then there happens to be just a bunch of water, and says, hey, uh, why don't we get baptized? And the guy's like, yeah, let's get baptized. This is just one more impossible coincidence, incredible coincidence, and a series of incredible coincidences. Philip goes down to the desert on a lonely highway, and this Ethiopian official just happens to be coming down the road at the exact same time. The Ethiopian official just happens to be reading the book of Isaiah, and Philip just so happens to approach him right at the moment when he's reading something he doesn't understand, which just so happens to be a confusing passage which only makes sense if you know about Jesus. And then in the middle of the desert, they just so happen upon a pool of water, and this Ethiopian man is baptized. And there's only one explanation that this text gives us for how all of these coincidences came together so perfectly in this moment, and that is that all of this was orchestrated by God. That God himself was ordering the steps of both these men so that they would meet up at this very moment in this exact place at this exact time when the one man was reading that exact scripture. Do you know that God is at work in your life? Do you know that? That God is at work in your life too. Just as we see him, we see this picture of God that he's not just detached like, you know, the clockmaker up in heaven. He set the time and he just kind of checked out and doing something else, you know. No, he's not detached, but he is intimately involved and actively involved. And I want you to know this, that God is at work in your life as well. He is. There are two things in play here as regards the work of God in people's lives. Two things that I want to point out. On the one hand, we see in the, in the life of the Ethiopian man, we see something called providence. Providence. Providence is when God is at work in your life behind the scenes, in the details of your life, the things that you have no control over, those seemingly random things, those impossible coincidences. Providence means that God is actively involved in the details of your life behind the scenes, even when you don't even realize it. Orchestrating stuff like when you were born and, and the people you come in contact with and the things that cross your path. Completely unbeknownst to this Ethiopian man, God was providentially leading him. The time that he would leave Jerusalem, how fast his chariot is going, what he's reading as he goes along, so that all of it lines up perfectly right when Philip arrives. You know, the thing to see from this is that God cares about you and God loves you more than you can even know. He is providentially working in your life behind the scenes. I've, I, I was reflecting on my own life in, in this regard about the providence of God, and I was thinking about how when I was going into high school, 
uh, my parents were looking to buy a house. They'd been looking to buy a house for a while, and they'd been looking in a lot of different neighborhoods and a lot of different parts of Denver. And so they end up buying this one particular house in this particular neighborhood. Well, then, you know, not long after that, this other family, they move in down the street. And it just so happened that they had a daughter who was my same age, and she went to the same school that I did, which actually wasn't even our local district school. And she needed a ride, and I had a car, so I ended up driving her. And yada, 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 she was a Christian, yada, 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 now I'm a pastor, right? And so the thing that I'm trying to point out is this. We see this in this section, this providence of God, how God is working behind the scenes to orchestrate these impossible coincidences and work in our lives when we don't even realize it because he loves us and he's working out his will in our lives for, his, for our good and for his purposes, But that's not the only thing. So that's the one thing we see is the providence of God in the life of the Ethiopian. But there's something else we see as regards how God works in our lives, and that's in the life of Philip, and that's what I want to talk about in this third section here, which is an exciting dynamic. Please read with me these last two verses, 39 and 40. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns he came to, or until he came to Caesarea. Ethiopia is historically, to our day, a historically Christian nation. They've had a historical Christian population, which dates back, well, to this time, actually. The Ethiopians trace Christianity in their country back to this man who came to faith on a deserted highway south of Jerusalem when he met Philip, just kind of, hey, what's this guy doing in the middle of nowhere running alongside my chariot, right? Now, isn't this amazing that God used Philip to reach a city of Samaritans and then pulled him away from that to minister to just one man? It didn't make any sense at the time, but that one man ends up taking this message of hope and salvation, this message that Jesus is the savior of the world. He takes it to an entire nation in Ethiopia. And of course, Philip couldn't have known any of that, could he, when when all this began, when he first obeyed God and said, fine, I'll go down to the desert. I don't know why you're doing this or what I'm supposed to look for, but I'll go. He was just following God one step at a time. And we see this again at the end of the story that Philip here, he baptizes this man and then seemingly right away the Holy Spirit leads him on somewhere else. Time to go. See, God was leading both Philip and the Ethiopian man. God was working in their lives, but the way that God was working in their lives was very different. With the Ethiopian, God was working in his life providentially, kind of behind the scenes, orchestrating events and moments and things like that, setting up this divine appointment. But with Philip, it was different, wasn't it? With Philip, God was leading him directly, dynamically, by the Holy Spirit within him. Now, I think that most people, I would venture to say this, most people are perfectly comfortable with believing the idea that God is at work in the world providentially, that God's at work in our lives providentially. But this idea that the Holy Spirit speaks and guides and leads people directly, like we see here with Philip, for some people that's very exciting and they say, yes, I want that. For other people, that scares them to death, right? Some people are cautious because they've seen this abused, right? You know, people who come around claiming that God speaks to them all the time and and they use it as kind of like a carte blanche to do or say whatever weird thing they want and no one can question it because God told them to do it. 
But we got to remember this. We can't let some people's weirdness, some people's wrong behavior prevent us from missing out on something great that God would want to do in our lives. Some people would say, well, you know, that was for that time. That was that particular time. That was a special time in which special things were happening. And God just doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. Now, I would disagree, and I'll tell you why I disagree with that. Because in John chapter 14, the gospel of John chapter 14, Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to go away. And in his place, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells his disciples something really incredible. He says, the time is going to come when the Holy Spirit will not only be with you, but for you who believe, the Holy Spirit will actually come inside of you. And, And that time... When that happened, it came. After Jesus' death and resurrection, when the disciples put their faith in him and what he had done for them on the cross, the Holy Spirit came into them and lived within them, took, in, took up residence within them. Now, sometimes you'll hear people just out, you know, in, in the city or in town and stuff. You hear people in society say this kind of catchphrase, right? That, you know, God is within all of us. Well, that's, I just want to say this. That's not actually what, Christian Christians believe. We don't believe that God is just inside everybody. In one sense, God has created all people in his image, and that means that all people bear the image of God. We all reflect something of the nature of God. It, it, that also means that fact that we're created in the nature of God or the image of God, it means that all people have intrinsic value, no matter their race, their gender, no matter if they have a disability, all people have intrinsic value because we're created in the image of God and we all reflect something of who God is. But the Bible doesn't teach that God is inside every person. Instead, the Bible teaches that that God places his spirit within those who have, through faith in Jesus, been born again to new life. And if that's you, if, if today you are that person, you could say, yes, I have put my faith in Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit is living within you. Jesus told his disciples that when the Holy Spirit would come and be within them, that the Holy Spirit would teach them and the Holy Spirit would lead them. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, that whole first section of Romans 8 actually talks about this, but it's kind of summed up there in Romans 8, verse 14. It says this, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You see this dynamic relationship in which God, the Holy Spirit, living within a believer, leads them and speaks to them. I believe that this is something that God can and will and wants to do in your life and my life even today. I believe that a life lived in this dynamic that we see here in Philip's life of being led by the Spirit, of having God, this Holy Spirit, dwell within you, speaking to you, directing you, that is the most exciting life that exists in the world. Now, a lot of people would wonder, how exactly did the Holy Spirit speak to Philip? Was it an audible voice? Was it like flaming letters in the sky? We don't know. But my assumption is that it wasn't either of those things, but it was rather that inner voice, that inner sense that this is what I should do, which you learn by experience to know that that is the voice of the Spirit. And yes, that is somewhat ethereal. Yes, it does leave room for error. And yes, people get it wrong sometimes. But that doesn't take away from the fact that God does place his Spirit inside of us to lead us and to guide us. I believe that God wants us to use the the minds that he's given us to make decisions and figure things out for ourselves. I don't think also that God is a, a chatterbox, right? Like he's just speaking all the time about every little thing. 
Yet there are times when God by his spirit will speak to us and guide us. And what a wonderful thing that is to know that the living God is actively at work, not only behind the scenes, but even directly speaking and leading and guiding. Isn't there something beautiful? Isn't there something exciting about a life that is daily submitted to God's leading? A life that says, God, what do you want me to do today? I've got my plans. I've got to go to work. I've got to go to school. I've got things planned out with my family, but I just want to surrender all of it to you, Lord. Uh, And however you want to work within my schedule or outside of my schedule, this day belongs to you, Jesus, and I ask you to lead me and guide me in it. I would encourage you as you go about this next week to be attentive to how the Spirit of God might lead you, how he, just like he led Philip. And keep in mind also as we close now how much God cares for single individuals, for people, individual people, that God would have left heaven just for you. And so as we pray, which is what we're going to do now, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to think about one person One person you know who really needs Jesus. And I'd like you to pray for that person and ask God to reach that person even through you. Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, as we consider the gospel, Lord, as we consider that you left heaven for us, that you left what was comfortable for you and you came on a mission in obedience to the leading of the Father, Lord, we, we want to live that kind of life. We want to live the life of Christ, live through us in this world. We want to be your hands and your feet. And we thank you, Lord, for this glorious truth that for those of us who have put our faith in you, you reside inside of us and you want to speak to us and lead us and you want to work through us. And Lord, we want to say, yes, please, please do that. And right now as we're praying, we, we each think of one person that we know, one person who we, we say, yes, Jesus, would you reach that person? Would you send somebody, just like you sent Philip to minister to this one Ethiopian man, would you send somebody to minister to that person? Would you speak to them? Would you work in their life providentially? Would you work even directly? And Lord, would you even send me? May we have that heart of Philip, that heart of obeying you, God, even when we don't completely understand everything. We thank you for his example. Most of all, Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you gave yourself for us to save us and redeem us. And we want to walk in the knowledge of that truth, of who we have become in Jesus by your grace. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.